Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeremy. Appreciate it. I'm really excited to have you on the show because you're a founder in Singapore tackling advertising technology. And it's just been amazing to see that you made a transition after a strong set of experiences as an operator. And so I'm just kind of curious about all of that. Before we get into it, could you introduce yourself yourself professionally? Sure. My name is Jonathan Egg. I'm currently the co-founder and CEO of Party Post. We're crowd marketing. We call ourselves a crowd marketing platform and we connect brands to influencers. Of course, for us, the definitions of influencers are a little bit different than the usual people who have a lot of followers on Instagram and social media. So for us, our original vision was actually to connect or allow anyone to be an influencer. You could have 200 followers, you could have 500 friends on Facebook. So we're really looking at how do we allow brands to connect to these regular people, I should say, and be able to post about products as well and, and really be able to be paid maybe a little bit on the side for their kind of word about marketing, I would call it. So I think that was our vision is getting started. And now we're in five countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, it's been close to five years already. So it's been a while. But yeah, that's, that's kind of a general kind of description of what we've been doing. Amazing. So tell us about what you were like in university because you started out in electrical engineering at a university at Illinois. So I'm just curious about what were you like? Were you already thinking about startups and technology back then? Actually, not at all. Was, that's a great question. Super different, I think, my mental state back then compared to now. I think in, in high school, I was in Singapore at that time, looking at different colleges and universities in the US. I, was, I didn't know where to go. I applied to a bunch of different places. Maybe this university is really good at engineering. This university here is really good at business. And so I kind of asked my dad, what should I do? He's like, son, I think you uh, seem okay and pretty okay at everything. A little bit of here, you know, A's here, whatever. But since you don't know, why you just do what I did? And it was engineering, computer engineering, electrical engineering, uh, that sort of stuff. So I kind of just picked that path at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign to do you know, electrical engineering. So that's kind of the path I took. At that time, I was just trying to graduate and, and uh, get my degree. Didn't have any clue about what should I do afterwards. So super, super lost at that time. And that's also where I've met my current co-founders there too. So I guess everything happens for a reason. But yeah, I really didn't know what to do. After I graduated, I, I went back to Singapore and I guess was looking for work to do there. I, I really didn't know where to go. Then a few friends were like, why don't you go into the finance industry? That's where all the money is. So kind of shifted over there and worked at a family office for a little bit, a few years there, right out of university. And did some algo trading, programming, traded, you know, you're at US Times, you're, you're sleeping at 4 a.m. and stuff. Life is probably not for me after like 20 years of doing this and sleeping at 4 a.m. every day and decided to start this. So that's kind of a little bit of background. So how did you go about starting this with your university classmates? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I was working at the family office for, uh, I think, four or five years already and just nice my co-founders, uh, actually one is actually Indonesian and the other one is from Taiwan. 
Uh, we all met at the University of Illinois back now. It's like 10, 10 plus years ago, super long ago. They were working in the U.S. and in Indonesia. One of them, the, the U.S. one, was moving back to Taiwan. The, the, the Indonesian co-founder of ours wanted to look for a new job. So everybody was kind of perfect timing, transitioning to something else. And I kind of had this idea, pitched it to them. They were like, okay, let's, let's, let's do it before, you know, we get too old and, and have kids and get married and stuff. So let's just do this. I think it's a great idea. And I think we really just wanted to work together and build something together. Of course, the idea had to be right. And we had to believe we could see it happening. It could be kind of uh, in the future and happening in the next four or five years. So that's why we kind of took a stab at it. What were they like in university? Everyone was just hanging out at the time. Was there ever an inkling that one day you go into business with them? What was it like hanging out with them? Actually, at that time, not at all, to be honest. Yeah, I, I can't lie and say, oh, we, we had this great idea. We were working 10 years ago. We were always playing basketball together. We always did projects together. And I think it built the foundation for our relationship and our trust having different roles, you know, in sports, right? I mean, I think business for me or startups too is kind of like a sports team. I think some people say that. And you kind of know your roles. What, what do you do? Are you for basketball? Are you a shooting guard? Or are, you do, are you this role, right? Are you a center? And what's your job? So wellness is outlined really clearly. And we knew we had that trust and working relationship already in projects or, or on the court playing sports. And I think it kind of went from there. So I picked them. Not every friend you can kind of work with in starting a startup. So let's talk about that. How did you know they were the right people to do a startup with? Because so many people ask that question over and over again. What would be your point of view on that? Well, actually, I think I think it a lot of it comes down to the personality of us three founders together. I, I wouldn't say you know we're perfect for each other or something like that, but there's a few rules we follow, and we really all believe in these values, rules or values, such such of sort that. We do disagree with each other. I'm sure most co-founders and any business, I think, just have disagreements and stuff, but we keep it inside. And we've been doing that since, I think, day one, and we've always resolved any conflicts relatively well and, and just stuck by each other and supported us. Uh, you know? And thank God, I mean, I came up with the idea, but they kind of lean on me for funding and, and you know that expertise, which I had some experience in. And I'll lean on you know Ben, who is my co-founder in Indonesia, for design work and he has the architecture background, design background, and of course, Tony with his accounting background, masters in that too. So yeah, it's just really leaning on each other and really trusting each other. And when we say something, we got to do it. And if we can't, we got to explain to each other why and how do we resolve it together. It's interesting because a lot of the typical founding teams are two people, right? And three people is a little bit more on the rare side. I personally have either founded with a two-man or a three-man team in the past as well. What would you say are some of the differences you think you notice from having one additional co-founder, like the three of you, rather than two? Yeah. Three of us, I think that definitely there's pros and cons to me. I've never had just one other co-founder, right? I, we've had, we have three right now in total. I think it gives an, another added perspective. Since we're all kind of based in different countries right now, it's really refreshing to, to hear what's going on in Taiwan, what's going on in Indonesia. And our personalities are similar, but also different, right? We have the values and, and core principles that we have aligned on. But Ben, on, on one hand, I, I, can, I think I could say this on air, but he's more conservative. You're doing forecasts and stuff. And he's like, I don't know. I think, I don't know about this. Let's, let's do it a little lower, right? Let's be more safe. I'm like, you're Indonesia. You have a lot of users there and, and people there. 
well, why is it lower than Taiwan's forecast? What's going on? And then we, we kind of look at each other and kind of rebalance it and make it consistent and really keep each other in check. I think having two people, maybe sometimes you might be like, is it just one person to go against me or what's going on? Let's see a third person. So I think third person kind of be three people might maybe make it, make it a little more objective in some sense or, or just add a different opinion. Co-founder dynamics is always tricky, right? Two or three. And obviously all of you had some prior relationship with each other. How did you guys do some team building or trust building activities? How do founders build trust over time? That's a great question. For us, I think it's about consistency. A lot of times we have our, uh, we're now based in different countries. When we started off, we were obviously, you know, in Singapore at the beginning of the first year or so. But after that, we moved into different countries, expanded to different countries, and they're now based there for the last, you know, three, four years, right? So we're actually pretty far apart. Before COVID, I think every quarter we would decide to meet up, have our board meetings, have a bunch of different discussions with our senior team, regional teams. And, and, you know, take turns with it in Singapore or Indonesia or Taiwan or different markets. We just really want to be consistent with that, I think. Of course, we have our Sunday late night calls every Sunday to kind of go through things and just letting each other know and communicate all the time what's going on. Yeah, I think that's been super helpful in building the trust. So we're, we're all really accountable to each other. So one thing you mentioned earlier was obviously how you guys came together so why tackle crowd marketing and advertising technology? Because previously you had been working more as a trader, you know, in the financial markets, and obviously with computer engineering background. So why advertising tech as this uh, initial jump off point? Yeah, um, I would say we really didn't think of it as uh, advertising tech or as in, in terms of verticals at that time, right? We were really thinking about the problem we felt wanted to solve and and we would go to work on every day. So it wasn't like, oh, okay, the brands that we were going after were in the advertising budgets and in the advertising tech kind of vertical. So we weren't we didn't really tackle from there, right or wrong, at the beginning anyways when we started. When we did more research, we're like, ah, oh, that's how you do it. But primarily initially at the beginning, we were just seeing how to empower everyday people to make a little bit of side income, make a little bit of money on the side to post about things or they're which they're already doing, posting on social media and stuff, and then earning a little bit of cash on that based on that. Of course we did more research into that. We're like, oh, influencers do that or the ones with bigger followers. And we we kind of looked into that industry a little bit more and saw the pain points there. How do we allow brands to connect to two thousand of these everyday influencers in like two days to post? So how do we do things and use technology to kind of enable that? What are some common misconceptions about this vertical? I think obviously, if you think of it from a more surface, more kind of a clickbait kind of article kind of feeling, right? You would think, oh, influencers, this is influencers. And you look in the past and kind of put us into that category, right? You're like, oh, they do some influencer marketing thing. It's done before. A lot of people are doing it. What's different about it, right? And I think that's good and bad. I think at the same time. We have a lot of clients and brands that work with us. They're just like, okay, I think you do influencers. Can you give me like, uh, you know, uh, show me some profiles of these big celebrities, you know, and then I'll work with them. We're like, we don't really do that. We really work with everyday people. We can get you the right profiles, the right demographics, the ones that live around there or something. And then they'll go down to your store, buy something and post about it for you. And we really enable a lot of them to do that. So that's our kind of, 
unique selling point, right? Speed and scale, and of course, the data that comes with that. So I think that's a misconception. But of course, when you're you know doing a startup and you and it's kind of a slightly newer thing for most people, then I think that's what you have to go through, and it's challenging, but it's also you know fun and and, and trying to educate people on what you're doing. Hopefully, it adds value to to the clients, right? So let's talk about influencers because it's very much a pyramid. So you have these like celebrity influencers at the top. Mm. Then you have your relatively standard influencers, the ones that a lot of people are following mm. as well, the local domestic ones. And then you have the micro, then you have the nano. And That's right. So tell us more about that pyramid of up and down and the trade-offs. Yeah, I would say I think every category of that pyramid has their own pros and cons, definitely. We're definitely dealing with the lower tier, I mean, the bottom tier there with the micros and the nanos, which I term also the everyday person can be a nano influencer. So I would say different trade-offs. What we probably, I mean, I think logically speaking, celebrities and stuff, they have certain pull on certain products and different countries also use different celebrities or, or tiers of these pyramid to do social selling, live, live streaming and selling that way and it works. It works really well. Of course, nothing against those celebrities and bigger influencers. They think they've been around a while and I think they'll continue to do really great. I think our proposition is how do we get to those, uh, how do we bring this new supply of micro and nano influencers into the pool and enable them to be as effective or potentially more effective than bigger influencers for some brands. Of course, if you're a brand that's in the luxury vertical, right, maybe you, you still want to be associated with the uh, a celebrity or something. But sometimes maybe, you know, working with a few micro nanos also helps the campaign and, and the ROI. Ultimately, we think that using everyday nano influencers has more uh, trust. And when you hear your friends talking about something, that's, which is a nano influencer, right? Assuming that they're saying uh, stuff authentically, that you believe them and you know them really well yourself. They like Italian food and they post about it. You're likely good to go try it out too, if you like it. So I think that's the differences. So that's a tricky part, of course, you talk about authenticity, right? And one of the tricky parts is that a lot of the influencer activity out there doesn't feel authentic. So how should brands be thinking about how to maximize the authenticity of their influencer budget? Yeah, that, that, is, a, that is a tough balance to strike, I think, at times. And, and something we're always trying to work on to aspire to, to do. Uh, I think whenever you throw money into things, it gives off people's impressions. Like, oh, you're just doing it for the money. Or is it authentic? And you try to, it, it becomes a question mark. Maybe they do love the product, but you, you kind of get the sense that it's a little tainted maybe and, and you're not sure as a, as, a, as a viewer or consumer, you're looking at a post of an influencer. I think what we try to do with our platform though is that we have a bunch of different polls or questionnaires, you know, and we ask a bunch of different questions like, what's a good example? Let's say, what sports do you like to do? So we'll have a bunch of different questions like that, or what products do you like to buy? Beauty products, hair products, or whatever. So we'll really give that list out, and we want these nano everyday people to influencers to answer these authentically. When they complete this questionnaire, these surveys, then we're able to give them the the, the, the campaigns, you know, which which are associated with these brands that they like already. So I think we start with find out how they're authentic first, what they're truly like. And then we show them the campaigns to fit them. And hopefully they're doing stuff that they already uh, trying out a different product, eating at a restaurant that they already like. And they're just kind of pushed a little bit to post about it. And I think that's kind of how we're, we're uh, figuring out that balance right now. 
So there's a lot of truth there because you're providing that middleman or intermediary dynamic to help match the right person to the right brand. Mm-hmm. So it does, because at least there's not visibly and obviously a mismatch. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's a lot more value there. And I guess that's true of every type, right? Celebrity, nano, whoever it is. That's right. I guess I want to kind of circle back to what you said earlier, which was the brand always has to make a decision between, okay, is a celebrity or top influencer versus micro or nano influencer. And one thing you mentioned, of course, was brand prestige, right? So that's one as well. That's super obvious. What other criteria would push a brand to go more for the micro and nano dynamics? I think definitely another factor besides prestige, like, like you mentioned, is just the advertising budget that they have as well, the marketing budget. So if you're a small, medium business or enterprise, I mean, you, you may na- never or may not be able to afford a celebrity and sponsor them with a million dollar products or pay them in that sense. So I think money is uh, definitely something that uh, is one factor. Another factor is, I think, also, the type of industry they're in, if it's FMB, you just have to think about word of mouth marketing, which, which is what we're trying to do, right? And scale up uh, in our platform. A lot of things can be done through word of mouth. And that's also not to say that celebrities don't work and when they push out a, a restaurant, it doesn't go. And we've seen many examples of that. But to have a strategy that can incorporate both or several different tiers of influencers, right? Whether it's from celebrities, macro, micro, or nano. And we've done several campaigns like that for different FMBs, for different FMCG brands as well. So they, they incorporate multiple levels and tiers of influencers to kind of execute their strategy. So how should a brand make sure that they succeed in getting their brand goals within their budget or making sure there's a high ROI? So obviously, okay, let's just say they hire the right team, mm-hmm. they, have the right, they choose the right level to go after. Mm-hmm. What else should they be doing in order to make sure that they don't just blow it and say, oh, that was a waste of time versus, wow, that was a good ROI here, we should keep doing it. So what is it that they need to do? Yeah. That's a great question. I think our team, when we approach our clients and our, these brands, I mean, the number one question we always ask them is, what's your objective and what's the KPIs? Straight off the bat, we want to really understand where they're coming from. And do we even match that? Is what we're offering in the services in terms of our micro nano influencers, does it actually able to achieve that? So if, if we can't, we're like, maybe, you know, next time or, or uh, later we have, you know, different features or different objectives that we can handle. Maybe we'll, 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 we'll catch up next time and, and do it for you. But some of those objectives that definitely the... The easiest one is definitely, you know, just general brand awareness, right? And you're able to, we're able to help them reach thousands of uh, these, uh, we call them party posters, right? Our, our, our own name, but these nano influencers to reach out to their friends and followers through social media. So I would say a lot of it comes down to also the timeline. Because of the platform, we're able to kind of reach out to a thousand people really quickly, right? Through the app, it's, it's self-serve. And you could see a really rush campaign happening. And uh, coming in today, and then tomorrow, you could see one or two two thousand people posting about it. So I think that's where the automation comes in. And you know, a lot of brands are always uh, super busy. All the marketers are, are super busy. They're doing a bunch of different things, advertising here, there, there, wherever. So I think what we want to offer is that ease and that efficiency for them. So that's that's another thing that we've been able to do. And I think we're also trying to experiment with. Um, and we call them these nano ambassadors, nano influencer ambassadors. So it's kind of really similar to, you know, how a brand would uh, a sponsor or have a celebrity as an ambassador. 
and you know work with you for an, a year. And they're kind of tied to you exclusively. Let's say it's drinking Coke for for one or two years or whatever, so forth, right? And um, all the commercials feature that celebrity. So similar in that sense, but we want to get these called nano influencer ambassadors to be part of the brand and not just post a one-off. Really find these loyal, authentic nano influencers and get them to be part of this multiple campaigns. So they're stuck with that brand. And I mean, just think of it, if you're a friend or follower of this, these nano ambassadors and you see your friend eating at this Italian restaurant, trying out for the first time, it's, oh, he or she posted once. It's not a, not a big deal, right? That happens all the time. He goes two weeks later, posts again, brings his uh, family. He's like, wow, this is great. I had just trying out another meal, another pasta. This is an awesome place. You guys should try. And maybe the next third time, next month, he brings you over. So I think that kind of uh, consistency and hopefully authenticity gets his followers and his friends to be like, that is actually legit. And it's a restaurant I want to try. So I think similar to how ads work with retargeting, you have to see it several, several times to be able to convert. I think it's the same with ours, but it's coming from your friend. You know, It's coming from someone you know uh, very closely. So we think you don't have to see it that many times to be convinced. So I think that's something we're doing to potentially even achieve conversions in the future. You, know, you mentioned something interesting, which is that a lot of these marketing contacts are busy juggling different things, different channels. Mm. And so do you feel like influencer marketing is a complement to paid, which is a complement to SEO? How should a marketer think about balancing or mixing or matching these channels in a way that makes sense and be more cohesive as a portfolio or as a bunch of different approaches rather than separate plays? Yeah, I mean, wow, that's a really tough question. Uh, if I was to answer perfectly, I'd be doing a job. It's just tough. I think different brands obviously have a different mixture of baskets, maybe 20% in these type of ads, digital marketing or paid ads and 10% in influencer marketing. So roughly from my knowledge, I think in Southeast Asia, of course, on average, it's about 5 to 10% of uh, most brands' budget is into influencer marketing. And we think it's growing according to you know, some reports and statistics. But of course, I think definitely the beauty industry is one that uses influencers a lot, whether it's celebrities or macros or, or nanos. So they're, they're, I think, and it's growing and increasing as well for the beauty industry. We can see that the right balance still needs to be there. This is what I personally think. I think if you go all in on one, and I've, I've heard marketers and, and brands tell me this before, that it kind of maxes out as well. You're spending all your, your budget on that. And it's not effective for every incremental dollar that you spend. The reach isn't there anymore. And the, the reach that you got was is exhausted as well. I think the right mixture is there. I can't really give exact percentages or anything right now, but I would say that having the right balance really comes from testing. And a lot of the brands that we work with, they started testing with us because we were new at the beginning to them, right? These nano, like nano influencers, why am I paying you and like some regular people? What's going on? So, and then they tried it out. It was effective, not for all, but for, for, for hopefully most of them. And more than 50, 60% of our clients, after they run one, they do come back and say, oh, it's actually pretty effective. You know, I want to experiment a little bit more or I think I want to, you know, it's been working. Let's, let's do more and all this A-B testing and marketing. So I think hopefully if we collect more data on our users, our, our nano influencers, understand more about what campaign mechanics really work for different industries and verticals, we can, we can generate better ROI as we collect more data. And are there 
geographic differences between the various nano and micro influencers because you're mm. doing five different geographies. So you must see a lot of variation, not just in lifestyles of the, the nano influencers, but also different approaches, right? Uh, definitely. I mean, just comparing, let's say, like Indonesia to Singapore, right? Indonesia is huge. And just alone there, we have over half a million users using our app as nano influencers. So I would say they also have more followers as well, right? Just just on average, uh, just because of the population. So the definition for a nano influencer there is a little bit uh, different. The range is a little bigger. Maybe they could, some of them have like 3,000 followers and that's normal. Whereas in Singapore, it could just be me also, but from our from our stats, uh, we don't have that many followers on Instagram or, or friends relative to like Indonesia, let's say. More even the Philippines, which is a really, really social country. And they're, they're using Facebook to search for things like Google, in fact, right? But from what I hear. So I think uh, every country has their own definitions of what are nano, micro, like you said, is really, really different definitions. And also the way they interact and how the clients perceive them. I think there's also definitely some local differences as well. For example, you know, Taiwan is a, has a lot of celebrities. It's, they have a culture of that and, and super, super famous ones, right? They go to China and, and become world famous. So they do have that, how would you say, that environment and that population that, hey, you have a lot of followers and I do trust you more. So our nano influencers there, I would say the range is even bigger, even though it's a, not a huge population like uh, Indonesia, but from 10,000 followers and down, we still call them like a nano influencer. One interesting thing is that you see a lot of brands struggle between creating like a total global slash regional marketing campaign using and versus more localized to the region, localized at the country level. And localization can range from media sets all the way down to like the choice of influencer. And I think recently we saw in Singapore, like Lazada and Shopee had totally different approaches to their influencer strategy about who they pick. Mm. I think one chose a much more Korean stars mm. to cover the whole region, saying like, hey, K-pop is a consistent love. And then someone else picked more country-specific top influencers for that country, but definitely a contrarian pick from most, you know, they wouldn't be heard of in other countries. So what do you think is the right balance between for a regional brand to be thinking about influencer marketing in various countries? Yeah, I, I, that's, a, that's a great question too. Yeah, the, the few regional brands that we work with, they do really appreciate that we're in several countries, five countries right now, and hoping to expand to two more in Southeast Asia. So they're really looking at a, I would say, a mixed approach. I think that's the term that, they're using is they do want some celebrities who will be a little bit more well-known in the region. Uh, could be a global star even from the US or from Korea, which is, you know, K-pop's huge now. But they also want to mix it up with a few local stars too. So I wouldn't say it's either or, but what we suggest is, especially at the beginning, is to try it out. Try a few, whether it's the mixture in local and regional or, or global type of strategies and influencers, but also trying to mix it up with the type of influencers. We know we specialize in or we focus more on you know, micro and nano influencers. But I mean, we also work with a few bigger influencers as well, celebrities and stuff sometimes. And that's just doing partnership with other agencies and influencers that we work with. So I would say a mixture is probably the best way to go. Of course, it does really depend on the brand itself. At first, they're going from the grassroots or they're going from below. And we would probably suggest a more local approach first. Of influencers 
and do that first, and maybe the, the timeline shifts later to something else. Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about the mixed approach, it feels like that makes the most sense. And it's interesting because as I reflect on it, it feels like influencer marketing has definitely stabilized and matured, I think, in terms of the professionalism of the influencers, the understanding of what it means from the brand's perspective, and also the maturity of the intermediaries in the safe space. So I guess in my brain, is influencer marketing a mature industry or is it something that still has a lot to grow, but in different ways? What do you think? Yeah, I, I, my personal opinion is, is the latter. Definitely, I think it has matured in some ways when you're working with the celebrities and, that's, and, and the macro, bigger influencers. That's been going on for the last, ever, ever since social media has been around in the, in the current sense, right? But even before then, there was influencers, put in quotations, and, and, and maybe they represent your brand in a commercial back then. So there were always these influencers around. It's just really what channel do they use to promote stuff. But in the current sense of the word influencers, I think the bigger ones, like I said, has that kind of has matured, that trend. The standards are set already on how to interact, like you said, the transparency, what they should do, what's the order of things, what's the rates. Pretty much standardized for the big ones. But for the micro and nanos, I think there's still a lot of room to grow. I mean, we just started three, four years ago. And, and back then, people were asking me, what's a micro or nano influencer? Never heard of it. What, what is that? Just a small, a very small one? What's going on? They've been asking me that. So there's a lot of room to grow because we feel we have a lot of room to grow and to kind of push this industry forward. Definitely, there are other players probably around the region, and we respect all of them, but I think we can grow the pie together. I think the key is really getting the best ROI for the client, but at the same time, helping the our, our nano influencers feel like they're pushing for a product that they genuinely like. I think that's the most important thing. A product they really like. So how do you define success then? How should they be thinking about success? Because it feels like a lot of marketing continues to be stuff. Can you measure? Can you not measure? And a big part of it these days, of course, is with less ad attribution from the changes driven by Apple and so, so forth. So it feels like a lot of stuff is becoming less measured as a result. So how would you normally push people to be saying, like, this is the results you can expect from this budget? How would you set it out for them? Yeah, I, th- I think um, it's also on their objectives, like I mentioned before. Some brands are saying, okay, I need to reach out to a million potential eyeballs and reach within a short period of time. Can you do that? We're able to hit these numbers for them. Some might say it's just brand awareness, it's reach, where's the sales and stuff. Of course, we have a lot of uh, SME clients as well talking to us and saying, I, I mean, they're not talk, working for reach. They're saying, I need to spend advertising budgets and I need sales pretty soon. You know, I need my business to sustain. So we, we totally understand that. And which is why the, the nano ambassador campaigns came about as well to, to see how can we help them and really use these nano influencers to generate sales, which we know they can. It's just what's the mechanics, what's the right way, what's the requirements of the campaign, what do they have to post, and in what order. What we're trying to do is make it a lot easier for these SMEs to do that. They have a, we call this like a, a you know, a self-serve campaign manager for them, where they can log in and click on and look at the different templates based on their objectives. And we kind of give them suggestions of this template would, would work for you. Try it out, put in a little bit of budget first, give it a shot. If it works, you know, you can ramp it up. 
So we really wanted to be sort of like the Google ads, you know, or the Facebook ads of nano influencers, if you will. So I think that's something we're, we're aspiring to. We're, we're definitely not there yet at all. But I think we have the foundations there. And, and I think we're getting there. Amazing. There you are. And you've learned so much over the years. Could you share with us a time when you had to be brave? Yeah, well, um, brave. I think it took some bravery, not a lot. And definitely not saying I'm braver than anyone else. But to me personally, I think it was a big step to be committed to starting party post personally. We had to think about the opportunity costs and things like that. You look at the financials and the numbers and things and thought, if would I regret this if I didn't do it? Thinking like 30 years later, would I regret not taking a try, taking a stab at this? The answer was yes. So I think given all the unknowns and the risk, there was a little bravery there, I hope, I'd like to say. I, I think the people who are braver than me are probably my team, the people in my team um, taking the chance with me. So, and the other co-founder, I mean, the co-founders I have too, taking a chance, I think, believing in me at the beginning too, and to believe in this idea based on my, I'm not so good persuasion techniques with them at that time. So, yeah, I think that's what I think was the bravest moment for me and, and braver for them to kind of tag along. How did you get past that fear and opportunity cost calculation? I think I'm also lucky in the sense that I want to say we, I don't have to worry about money or anything, right? But I, I don't feel the need to buy a lot of expensive things. I think living within your means is, is normal for me. It's not something I have to work at to, to tell myself don't spend on things. So I think I was lucky with that. Same with the other two co-founders. We, we were kind of also thinking about maybe we should push our, our, you know, having kids and getting married a little bit down the line, right? To be honest. So I think that played into a factor as well, talking to our partners about that, just being super lucky. So was I super brave? I think maybe the people around me was braver to, to kind of give us that opportunity to, to take this plunge right into doing a startup. So, but yeah, I overcome it because of the people around me. I have to thank them for that. Yeah. I mean, you say something very true, right? We just talked and implied, you know, it's really about the financials, but not just about having the savings and all, but also about the lifestyle mm. in terms of the expenses that you were making and the choice that you're saving, as well as something else, which was postponing some life decisions. That's right. You know, to make space for it. Mm. And I remember personally that. And I was always told, like, if you ever want to build something, make sure that you your expenses don't grow faster than you <laughs> don't grow as fast as your income yeah. uh, or faster than your income for many folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have that similar thought process or feeling about that? Yeah, for sure, for sure, man. I think expenses and and all these things definitely, definitely plays a part in all the decisions that we make. Definitely, we I'm doing the calculations before we start the startup. I'm doing projections for the startup, and you know all the projections you can do, I mean, sometimes you got to throw out the window, right? It's never super accurate. So you can only kind of do them and hope for the best. Yeah, ultimately it comes down to how much passion you do you really want to take the leap of faith, no matter all the projections and numbers that you do. Yeah, you got to do some to make sure it, it makes some kind of sense. But after that, you're like, not sure how accurate it is, but let's just do it, guys. Let's do it. Thanks so much. I appreciate you, Jonathan, for coming on the show. I like to phrase the three big themes I heard from you. The first, thank you so much for sharing your personal founder journey. Uh, I thought it was just an interesting uh, dynamic to hear about the fact that you didn't know what was going on <laughs> for university. So you just did what your father suggested to working in the finance industry, like so many folks <laughs> in Singapore, <laughs> to eventually deciding to strike on your own. 
And I really appreciate you for being honest about the various trade-offs and decisions that you had to make along the way. And I thought it's not an easy set of conversations to have at any point of time. The second I thought that was really interesting was talking about obviously our domain dive into micro and nano influencers across the various geographies in Southeast Asia and thinking about how to think about it from a brand perspective, but also thinking about it from how to maximize the ROI from it, which is both useful for brands, but also useful for many startup founders who will also be thinking about an inflow budget along the way. And lastly, I think thank you so much for talking a little bit about, I think, the true founder dynamics, uh, about what it means to work with a co-founder, what it means to work with two other co-founders, <laughs> and how you guys actually met, and how it kind of made sense backwards, but maybe not so much at a point in time when you're just playing basketball together. And also, I think, talking a little bit more about how to manage and minimize risk and calculate opportunity cost and uh, be thoughtful about how you're going about it. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on the show. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you for having me. I appreciate all the time. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.